Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you're doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. This week's episode is a continuation of the interview with Jacqueline Brown. It begins in the middle of the interview. There is a great need when you are on this parallel journey with your loved one while they're, you know, experiencing substance use disorder, as well as recovery, because it doesn't end when they're not using the substance anymore. And there, there is a whole lot involved with the after portion of it as well. But it's kind of like what you talked about when you started grieving in that first year of grief. You were so focused on other things. You weren't actually focused on the grieving part. I think that family members that are in that journey and their loved one is still, you know, going through a lot of a lot of turmoil and a lot of strife. It does give the family something to focus on and to do. And that's a positive thing. And it's a way to kind of baby step the family member over to doing bigger and kind of getting more kind of pulling away, but still being involved, right? So it was one of those things like everybody kept saying in in more traditional, like I, because I did, I went to all of the groups and I, and my son did go to a more traditional rehab and, and they were all telling me, oh, you know, there's nothing you can do. Just stand back and let him hit rock bottom. And you got to, and, and I was like, no, there's got to be something I can do, something I can do. So to me, it was like, then craft came into the picture and it did give me something to do. It gave me actual skills that I can do. I can learn how to communicate. Granted, in the beginning, when I first started doing it, I was still focused on, and Kayla, we've talked about this. I was still focused on the outcome of my loved one's behavior and it took me a while to kind of move away from that, that, oh, no, this is not about the outcome of my loved one's behavior. That's going to be like this added frosting on the cake kind of thing. But it, it's actually more about grabbing a hold of the things that I do have control over, which is me and my behavior, and becoming empowered that way. And then it blossoms out from there and affects people in my life in a more positive way, which again, also doesn't mean that I'm going to help get my loved one into long-term recovery or sobriety, or it might not happen that way, but it will improve the situation. And it'll actually bring, so let's say the worst happened in my family. At least I know I was able to let my loved one know, hey, I'm here and I love you more than anything else. And we're, I'm going to stay with you and we're, we're going to go through this together. Yeah. And I, I really love that you touched on that power dynamic because my brother, whatever it was, he wasn't going to do it. And if you told him, hey, you should do this, he definitely wasn't going to do it. So the approach we were doing was absolutely bonkers thinking back, you know, thinking back on it. But the the power piece is so huge because 
you feel like you have lost so much power in this. Like you're going against Goliath here. If you lose your loved one, they're the most powerless feeling. Like there's nothing left you can do. And for me with going through advocacy, I felt like I was taking my power back because now I get to control my narrative. I get to say and finally speak up about this thing that I was so afraid to talk about. And mind you, while this is going on, I still work in corporate America and I work in IT. I can't openly talk about this in corporate America because that's corporate America. It got to a point last year where I'm like, I don't think I can keep doing this. Like, it, I feel like I'm, again, living a different life. Here's corporate Jacqueline. Okay, I'm going to sit here and do IT stuff all day. And then I log off and I'm like, I'm going to create, you know, all this advocacy stuff. These two worlds don't align. So after mobilized recovery last year, where I learned how to do public narrative coaching, which is teaching people how to tell their story in a very succinct, like two to three minute way. So if you have to testify in front of Congress, say you need um, to testify in front of like fundraising, you need it for your nonprofit. It teaches you how to get your story in a very succinct, emotional, whatever spot so that you can fully convey where you're coming from. What is your why? What do you value? And after I coached that, we were sitting around with coaches and I was like, I'm going to quit corporate America. And everyone was like, yeah. And everyone cheered. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And then I called my husband. I was like, yeah, it was so great. I'm quitting. And he was like, Okay, but this was something that had been brewing for a while, like internally, it just was not sitting well with me to keep focusing my energy on corporate, you know, stuff I don't care about. So I, I did quit my job and it was the scariest, most liberating thing I could have done for my parents. I probably could have brought it up at a better time than my dad's birthday celebration, but we're cutting the cake. And I was like, by the way, I'm quitting my job and I don't have anything lined up and everyone just stops. And um, my dad's like, I I'm sorry, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to quit. I don't like my job. I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm going to try to figure out something in advocacy or coaching or something. And my dad's like, I mean, I really think you should have. And I was like, I'm not. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing a backup plan. It was the opposite of who I've been my entire life. I've been responsible. I have planned A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Like, this is the first time where I'm like, let's just see what happens. And mind you, so that was a year ago. I only started, officially started my coaching business about two weeks ago. I've been coaching in some sort of way. I took leadership courses because I needed to feel more confident in myself. I don't have letters after my name, my degrees in marketing. I don't work at a treatment center or, or anything like that. So in my opinion, I needed to give myself street cred somehow, even though everyone said your lived experience is, is valuable. And I was like, eh, I'm going to take some classes. So that's what I did. And I took leadership courses so that, I could believe who I was, you know, I could believe in the fact that I could coach someone else because as I've said, I have PTSD, depression, anxiety. I am nowhere near put together. I manage it, but 
who am I to coach someone else? It's like the blind leading the blind here. But what I realize is that I'm just maybe a couple chapters ahead of someone else in my very fast track of trauma. And I'm just trying to help them in their spot understand maybe where they want to be at. Because another thing that you had pointed out is when you try to tell someone to do something, what we think they should do, they're not going to do it. Let's just be honest here. <laughs> and another thing too, is my husband was a, a couple years ago was diagnosed with ADHD. And for us that like opened the floodgates as to why did you ask me for years how to do something? I told you how to do it. And then you never did it that way. Like, what was the point? Why did I waste my breath? But now that has helped me understand that if I coach you through and I ask you a bunch of annoying questions, which he found very annoying, he's like, why do you keep asking me this? And I'm like, we're going to keep going because he's like, just tell me what to do. I'm like, nope. So my type of coaching is really focused on. I want you to arrive at the solution you come up with, because if you arrive at your solution, you have more buy in from your own idea than my idea because uh, I've had to learn that the hard way, that now I'm taking on this role, this job where I have been number one advice giver. I've been the go-to for everything. Now I'm just shutting up and I just know the right questions to ask now to help someone come to that realization. So again, it took me a year to officially do that, but I also had other personal stuff going on. Like my husband and I, we don't have kids. We had two dogs and Best believe a week after I quit my job, one of them needed heart surgery and it turned into both of them ended up getting cancer and both passed away. One passed away in May, one passed away in August. And these dogs were our life. And so to have the grief again with Mark, I was grieving someone who was already alive and knowing they both had cancer. I'm grieving these dogs. And for people who aren't pet people, they're just like, ah, they're just dogs. No. These are our children. They're your babies. They are. And we had seven years with them. Like we adopted both of them. They're both, you know, older. And but I had to work through a lot of my stuff and be in this place where I could grieve. I wasn't pushing through to do I learned my lesson the first time. You push through, you're gonna end up in the hospital. So let's sit and business or whatever can come later. Like we figure things out. And I think a big piece is that now I just, I really want to help empower family members to take their power back because so much of our power has been stolen for uh, from us. And especially after a loss, and it's like, I've never been so defeated in my life. So while I could stay stuck in the grief, I don't want to be, it's a very dark place. So if I can find a way to help other people, like here's a hand to crawl out of that hole. I've been in that hole. I decorated the hole. I, I was fine in that hole for a very long time. There is a way to find life after loss and you don't have to feel guilty about it. That's said than done. <laughs> yeah. And the family member special is guilt. Like we all carry guilt. The other paradigm that people walk around with is that there's so many people that we're talking to that believe that their job is to save their loved one's life. And so if we lose them, that's failure. 
Yes. Or that's how it's perceived as failure. And that's such a dangerous position to walk around in. It's a natural feeling that I'm responsible for this person's life. But, you know, as people make fun of me, I say, you're not a superhero. You're not in a, a first responder. You're not the person who could fly through the air and save somebody. The desire makes sense, but the actual ability to save some, someone's life is not actually true. You cannot keep somebody alive. Totally agree. But I also think it's really important that people see to me, this is another one of those, you're stuck in this thing. And I often will say, it is not that I don't know that I can't save my loved one. It is not that. It is actually the knowing that I can't save my loved one. That is this frustrating part. And I cannot get rid of that piece of it. And it actually wasn't until I accepted that if something really bad happens, I'm going to feel guilt no matter what. I think it's just something that I'm going to feel. And so knowing ahead of time that, yeah, you're probably going to feel that way. I don't know if it's helping. I, I would say this. It helps me now to know that. <laughs> it helps me now. Maybe not if it does happen, maybe that won't help. I, you know, I don't know. And knowing that about myself, knowing that I'm going to feel this guilt no matter what, and knowing that I can't save my loved one, it's still not necessarily going to stop me from trying, it, uh, right? I just can't. And it doesn't mean I, I don't try and then pull myself back or you know, I have to be aware of it and that kind of stuff. But I also find it very frustrating when people, when people start, well, you can't save him. Remember, you can't save him. And it's like, oh, you know, just let me wallow in it for a while. What Kayla said, though, was spot on about me. I felt like I needed to save him. I'm the person that will save him because guess what? My parents were the ones that came to me. Hey, can you talk to him? Because I have this connection with my, so the sibling connection is a very unique connection. Like we are bonded for, it, it's like us against our parents, you know? And it was something where I needed to save him. And like you said, when he died, it was the most immense feeling of failure. I didn't save him. I didn't. And that's honestly what, yes, I had grief associated with it. But that's what really started to trigger my depression because I started to notice, like, if I couldn't save him, what's the point? What's the point in, in me even being here? And I started to get really dark thoughts. I remember driving to work 80, 90 miles an hour, hoping, I hope someone sideswipes me. You know, I don't care anymore. Like, I didn't do what I needed to do. And so to carry that weight of, I'm the oldest sibling, I'm the protector. But then to have that third parent component, it is hard to not feel, to have zero control and to finally accept I don't have control. Only this year have I fully accepted there are many situations where I don't had control. That took me 38 years to realize. I think that's my point. As a mom, that I do feel like I need to save him. Of course I do. I'm his mother. Of course I need to save him. And I am not disagreeing with you at all. And actually what I'm saying is 
is that even knowing that, even knowing that I can't save him, I am sure that if the worst happened, I would still feel the guilt of I didn't save him. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is that the guilt is inevitable. When my mother died, I felt completely guilty. It's it's like we have roles that we want to do that. So that what I'm saying is that if you have this kernel of the alternative inside of you, it actually allows you to get through it a lot easier. Because I, what you're saying, Jacqueline, is that when this happened, it's like, this was my role, double role, is parentified child and protector sibling, older sibling. So that was my job. And it's this absolute, this is what I was supposed to do. This did not happen. I'm a failure. Exactly. That's dangerous. It is. What, what I'm saying is that if nothing else, we need to implement what I consider a more complicated thought process, which is that things are complicated and that instead of it being simplistic, I am the person who needs to save him. He's not here. So I failed. That's a simplistic straight line thought. And so we have to have the other seed inside of us that says, I tried everything I possibly could and it did not work. There's another larger process that happened here that I don't have control over. So basically doing the same thing that we've talked about all the time and bringing in alternative, realistic type thinking, even when we're having these awfulizing, extreme awfulizing thoughts, bringing in these alternative thoughts to help manage. And understanding that things are not black and white. They are gray, every possible gray in the world. And understanding, like you said, Things are complicated. If I say, how are you doing? I'm fine. That's a complicated fine. Like, yeah. what, what <laughs> do you want to know? Mentally, physically, emotionally, which, which level are you asking me about? But it, it's such a great way to look at it is that everything, especially related to addiction, is not simple. There's always a complex, bigger issue at hand. And I think that's the perfect call out is that, it's a lot more complicated. And I think sometimes us family members can get to a point where it's like, it's just simple, just stop using. Mm, it's not. Which is why harm reduction, because harm reduction helps to tap into that complication and make it very individualized and not this old one path fits all. Harm reduction kind of is great. It's like, are you in recovery? Are you using? It's great. And that's one of the latest things that I've come to as somebody who's been doing addiction work for many, many, many years. It used to be black and white. You're either sober or you're relapsed. And it is so liberating as a professional to be able to like say, yeah, it's complicated. And again, what we obsess about in craft is, is function and behavior. So what happens is to me, relapse is about behavior. It is not about what you're using. It's about, are you able to take care of yourself? I've seen people do so incredibly well on Suboxone. Like they've gotten their lives together. And it's like, you need to be on it forever. Who cares? This is great. If you had diabetes, you'd be taking insulin for the rest of your life. That's fine. If this is the medication that you need and it works, great. So I feel like with all of us, it's like the number one message that I hope people get is that our roles are complicated our relationships are complicated. Addiction is complicated. The interventions that we have to choose from are complicated. 
And there is absolutely no right answer at any given time. There's a, an answer that you have to sit with and say, right now, what's right for me? That's why people say, should I kick him out? Should I let him in? Whatever. You have to sit with yourself and say, what's going to work for me? And that's going to change from minute to minute. Well, ladies, I think that's our summary for today. Jacqueline, I want to thank you so much. Uh, you have been such a pleasure to have on as a guest. And we may be calling you again. I'm <laughs> here every week. I will talk all day long. I am a very deep, I've gone through a lot of therapy. I I, I, can, I love talking about just the inner workings and stuff like this. And Lori, I'm going to see you in a couple of weeks because I'm taking that craft session that you are doing. So oh, yes, oh, yes, I'm awesome. signing up today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you Absolutely. so much. Absolutely. The other thing is, how can people contact you? So I finally created a website after a year. My website is staygoldenjacqueline.com. Um, there's a contact thing on there. Even if you just want to contact me, like you don't have to coach with me. I'm also not very good self-promoters. So if you just want to talk, you can message me through there. And yeah, I mean, that's probably the best way. Can I ask, who are you coaching? Are you coaching family members? Is that what you're doing? I am actually coaching the people I'm coaching right now. So I'm kind of doing like a focus group where I was like, I will offer you free sessions because obviously I've never done this professionally before, but I would love to have your detailed feedback and have a review from you at the end. So the people that I am coaching right now, some of them are family members. Some of them are people in recovery. Some It's across the board. So the things that I truly focus on, values, how to tell your story, advocacy. Those are those are my big pieces. But I've gone through it all, as you've heard. So I, I could probably help out in any situation. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. And um, I tell you, I think we're going to have to come up with some kind of a conference or something. And we'll have Jacqueline on as like an expert. I would love that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on, Jacqueline. Thank you. Thank you, Kayla, and we will be back next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.